0: And I help run a company called Impact Due Diligence Investigations. If you need anything in terms of investigative services, feel free to contact me at Impact. If I can't help you personally, I'll certainly direct you to the right person or agency. All right, guys, let's get to it. Just a bit of housekeeping stuff, as we usually do at the beginning of each episode. Just as Labor Day had passed, I guess we're going to put Summer in the rearview mirror. But I had occasion to be down Cape Cod over the holiday weekend. Man, it was gorgeous. There was no humidity in the air. This is actually my favorite time at Cape Cod, just after Labor Day or right at Labor Day into September. The weather's still great, but there's usually no humidity. Man, it was picture perfect down there. We went to Clancy's Fish and Chips, and no, this is not a commercial. That's where I get my fix for clams on the Cape. It's in Dennisport, Clancy's Fish and Chips, Best Clam Plate Dinner on Cape Cod, bar none. I had an amber-colored beverage with it, and it was a simply beautiful night, breeze blowing in, man, it was just so excellent. And also, there's sometimes a long way at Clancy's Fish and Chips, right? But they told us 90 minutes, and they took us in 40, so wait it out. It goes pretty quickly. All right, that's my Cape Cod exploration for this summer, I guess. But I'm hoping to do a little bit more in September. Love Dennis Port. Love the entire Cape. If you're down there, enjoy it. And if you're not there, I'm sure you're wishing you were back. It was a great time. Guess we got to kind of shut the door on summer. But fall is still a beautiful season here in New England. So enjoy it. And also, guys, again, I want to say thank you to you guys our numbers are exploding and things are going well and I'm still doing the same thing so I think I owe it all to you guys so I just trot out these stories I take some suggestions I'm trying to improve the podcast I think I said when I started this I was looking to improve one percent each episode I think we can claim success on that goal And now we go forward and I just, I'm looking to expand listenership. So if you guys know anybody who likes true crime, send them a podcast link and let me know how they like the show. All right, guys, it's time to get on with the third in our series on Gennaro and Julio from Boston's North. And he was the underboss of the Italian mafia. But as I said in the first episode, he was really the top of the food chain in Boston. His boss was Raymond Patriarca, the godfather, and he was in Providence. And it's difficult to run both Providence and Boston. Boston is the capital of the area, no matter what you may think. And the Boston Mafia was generating so much cash for the entire national mafia, really. And In the book that I use for this research, The Underboss, The Rise and Fall of a Mafia Family by Dick Lear and Gerard O'Neill, former crime reporters for the Boston Globe. It's an excellent book, and definitely check it out. I got mine on Amazon. Definitely worth a read. This is the second time I've read it. I read it in preparation for this show, and years ago when it first came out as well. And it's an excellent read. And it definitely gives you some insight that I didn't know about into the Boston Mafia. Specifically, I didn't know how much money was involved. If you remember in the first episode in this series, I told you that there was some type of investigation with Bank of Boston in some businesses that the Anjulos owned, specifically Jerry owned. And there was evidence of about $7 million in wire transfers. And I believe in that time, it was the early 60s. And I told you guys, I did a comparison in terms of buying power today as to the early 60s with what they found for Jerry's businesses. And it was $7 million in cash. And I told you that transferred to about $70 million in today's buying power and today's cash. It was actually closer to $65 million, I was rounding up. And that was all in julo money guys. That was 65 million dollars of their own take. What were they giving to Providence? And I mentioned in the last episode they were getting 20 grand a week. This was probably in the 70s from the Winter Hill gang. So, man, it was just flowing in. Absolutely flowing in the amount of money that the Boston Mafia generated. It actually kept Jerry alive because he was such an arrogant bastard. All right, let's get on to this episode, and I'll bring you to the tail end. So I think I brought you up from Jerry's humble beginnings to his working as a bookmaker to being made underboss of the Boston Mafia. And I think that brought us right up just past the Joe the Animal Barbosa attempt to take out the hierarchy of the Boston Mafia. So during all this time, I think I had mentioned it in the second episode, one of Jerry's main goals, and Raymond Patriarch is in Providence as well, was to consolidate this network of independent bookies. And from, I don't know, the 60s up until the 70s probably, they worked on that, but once that came in, and once Winter Hill, the Winter Hill gang came out on top of the Irish gang wars, man, it was a gravy train for Jerry Angelo, and in this book, The Underboss, The Rise and Fall of a Mafia Family by Dick Lear and Gerard O'Neill, the Angulos were making about 45000 a day in cash just in betting, and don't forget, on top of that came in the 20000 a week from the Winter Hill Gang. So just from gambling, their own gambling network, they were making 45 Gs a day. So that's on a 30-day month, it's about $1.3 million a month in cash on top of the Winter Hill money. And there were smaller networks of independent bookmakers. They had really solidified that because the mob had said, we can't have this anymore, You're either with the Hill or you're with us. I heard it was better to be in town than it was to be with Winter Hill because you had more layoff options and you had more protection options. Don't forget, you're carrying a lot of cash. You're a neighborhood bookie. You got two or three people working for you, right? And you have, I don't know, $20,000, $50,000 in cash on you at a time. So you're ripe for a robbery. So part of the money you pay to the larger organization is protection. And they say in town, the Anjulos gave better protection than Winter Hill did. So that's just something I heard in my time in Boston. All right. Jerry was always in some battle, whether it be with the IRS or the FBI. Well, he never had any problems with the Boston cops that I remember, but he was always on a war footing. But... One of the things that brought Jerry down, obviously his mouth, and he was over-reliant on his neighborhood security. He did have this almost fail-safe system in the neighborhood where there'd be local wise guys on Salem Street, kind of the entrance. There'd be other guys on Hanover Street. So when they start to see faces they don't know, they think either FBI, tourist, or state police. And they get to the bottom of it pretty quickly. So Jerry, for years, was protected by this, but Agent John Morris, and I know, like, when I say this guy's name, John Morris, it gives me some bile in the back of my throat, knowing what he did just a few years later with the Winter Hill Gang and Whitey Bulger specifically. But I guess throughout this book, he is the hero here. He is the absolute FBI hero. Him and an FBI agent by the name of Quinn. And I'm sorry to say, a lot of these names, Quinn, Gian Turco, Morris, they're mentioned in other books and in this book as being tainted by corruption in Boston. So it's difficult to rely on them, but I guess you have to put it in perspective. At one time, these were good cops. H. Paul Rico, I think of the FBI who taught these guys how to play these games, was never an honest cop. I think Morris was. I think Conley was. And I blame part of the FBI for telling them in no uncertain terms, do whatever it takes to get the Italian mafia. And their careers were at stake. And you'd get bonuses if you made these big arrests. And you'd get accolades. That's how you promoted in the FBI. So there was money behind it. And another thing with the FBI during this time, their salary was thirty-five grand, right? And the mafia is making 45 Gs a day. That's got to burn your ass on some level, right? All right, let's get on with it. So John Morris comes up with the idea that they had to put a bug in 98 Prince Street, the headquarters of the Boston mob. The problem was the intricate informal security system. Also, one of the other Angelo brothers lived across the street at 95. So they thought bugging this would be nearly impossible, but they saw no other option. And during this time frame, don't forget, there's a guy in New York, a mafia kingpin by the name of John Gotti, and the FBI was able to get a bug into his clubhouse, but what they didn't realize, all the real business was conducted by John Gotti in a private room upstairs, or he would walk around the neighborhood of his Ravenite Social Club, I believe it was in Brooklyn. But they got him on tape, so it gave them some confidence in the fact that it could be done. It was just literally getting in to 98 Prince Street. And in 1981, they start that process. And they have several failures, and they almost get caught. At one point, they're trying to do some reconnaissance. And the reconnaissance van, they leave a camera in there. And they'd just flatten the tires, break the car antennas, and all this. And it was difficult, but I never really understood wanting to film. Like, it would be difficult to get film on these guys, and what would you really get? But they decided to go with audio bugs, and they actually had a hard time getting the hardware. And Morris groups together a specialized unit, it's very large, especially for an office the size of Boston. Some of these guys are technical experts, and they start to work the neighborhood in the late night and early morning hours before the sun comes up. But don't forget, the North End is full of bakeries and cafes. That neighborhood wakes up early, so they had to be careful. They'd send agents through the North End kind of stumbling about, faking they just left the party, male agents, female agents and just try to see who's on the street. And a lot of these guys, the technical guys, were trained locksmiths and all that. But they went out at least three times before they had any success with all this equipment trying to get into 98 Prince Street. And go through the book. The chapter on getting inside 98 Prince Street is pretty fascinating. They just didn't give up. And... They eventually found their way in. It was January 1981. And guys, I can't tell you how big of a deal this is for the FBI. And we all know in Boston what the FBI really is, right? What would come in just the next few years. But this was one of the best FBI investigations. And they put it at the feet of this John Morris. And I guess I will too. At a certain point... The guy turns, and I think what happened with Morris is he started drinking a lot, and that was his actual problem. And then they started meeting with Winter Hill, and they'll exploit anything they can, and they did, and they played him like a fiddle, but okay. At this time, I think John Morris is a legitimate cop. He put this all together, he didn't want to put any of his people in danger. And there were mafiosos just walking around the neighborhood, so they had to get in between them, and they did. So January 81, they finally get in, and it is an urethral moment for the FBI because they know what's going to happen. And they're trying to put the bugs in all night, and just before about 5 a.m., they were going to have to leave, right, because the sun was coming up. The sun was only due to come up at about 7 a.m. because it was winter time, right? It was January, so the sun comes up later. So morning twilight starts at about 5.30, though, so people would start to notice, and the neighborhood is, is coming alive. And finally, they put the bugs in, and the bugs have to be relayed from the north end to a switch in Charlestown, and then I think they start to record it and all that. They leave there and they're slapping each other on the back, and it's the best day. You've been working on this for months. It was like three or four months they were trying to figure this out how they were going to do it, who was going to do it, getting the equipment. So, this was a culmination of work for them, and they celebrated and they deserve to do so. What a moment that must have been, too, right? You'd get those bugs up and running, and it's going to be big because you know what just happened in New York City. I think John Gotti ended up beating that rap, but to get the mafia on tape, it, it's a, just a big deal. And as this case progressed, the media end of it is just absolutely insane. But don't let me get too far ahead of myself. So that morning, that very morning, that they put those bugs in, nine a.m. Frankie Angelo is opening up the shop, and he was the real numbers man. He was the day-to-day operator of 98 Prince Street. He was kind of like chief of staff who got to see Jerry, who got to see Zanino and all that, and he knew everybody in the neighborhood, and if he didn't know you, you weren't getting in, and I believe he's the brother that lived across the street at number 95, so they hear him coming in, and now business is open, and they're waiting to see what comes, but one of the things that the FBI agents said when they first broke into 98 Prince Street, and it kind of surprises me as well, is the furnishings were like a run of the mill kind of rundown office. <laughs> the FBI agents were kind of deflated, like all this money floating around, and it kind of looked like a VFW hall, basically, right? The only oh wow moment they say was the kitchen. It was a big chef's stove in there, gas range. And I guess they like to cook. Cooking and talking and making money was what the Angelo brothers did, man. I can't believe it. 45 G's a day pouring into that office. My Lord. But the bug began giving great information or recording great information right from Jump Street. And it would be in place for about four months, I think until about May, May 81, they went in and took it out. But during that time frame, Jerry was very worried about a RICO case. And the strange thing is, him talking about RICO got him a RICO case. And man, would he talk. And they all seemed to reminisce. Zanino, Jerry, Nick, they'd all reminisce about violent stuff they did, how much money they made, who they whacked, the cops they paid off. And man, they just talked themselves into generations in prison. There was so much crime (laughs) coming out of those bugs. It must have been a joy to hear. But one of the problems the agents were running into was that there was so much they had to back up. And John Morris did have a great idea at the time. He also bugged Zanino's North Margin Street headquarters. Zanino was always between 98 Prince Street and North Margin Street. So what would happen, and Morris had a great idea to do this, that get the orders from the Anjulos, Jerry specifically, at 98 Prince Street. And then he'd go back to his place, I think it was a cafe or something like that, or a private club, on North Margin Street, and he'd give the orders. So it showed a flow of power. This was definitely an organization with supervision, and people below you basically soldiers right when he went back zanino went back to his place and he'd tell them how it was going to be and they had just heard from jerry that's how it's going to be so this flows downhill and the soldiers go to work on whatever they were given that day you know there was really little talk like there's so much crime talk everything was covered There was a murder of a Patrizzi brother. He was covered. They had to get rid of him because he was looking for revenge. And they'd talk openly about it. And eventually, I believe this guy who was going to strike back at the mob Hayaki was killed by some people who took him out of a nightclub. But they had gambling. They had receipts. They had numbers. You know, like the daily take. Oh, we made forty-eight thousand dollars in cash today. That was like everyday conversation. He never envisioned a bug, and he should have. You want to know why? Because right in the news, as that was happening, was the John Gotti thing. Like, you know, you're making forty-five grand a week. Pay five grand a week to have this place swept for microphones, but they were too cheap to do it. Crazy, right? So the FBI starts running into a problem where there's too much information. They're worried a jury will never be able to follow all of this. And don't forget the FBI agents had to listen to all of this and transcribe it by hand. And I guess that's kind of why they wanted video surveillance as well. So you could match the voice to the face. You know, here's Jerry leaving. North Margin Street, you know, at four o'clock, and Zanino's back at his place at 6 30, you know, just so they could tie it all together timeline wise. So it seemed like Jerry kind of knew something was coming. There was a lot of activity, and at one point, he wasn't seeing the FBI around the North End that much, and that comes up on the tapes, right? He says, How come we haven't seen that a hole Conley around? because John Conley would harass the Anjulos, I guess, and kind of get in their face and go up to Mafioso. We know what he was all about now, but he was always asking, how come we're not seeing Conley around? And so the FBI has to tell him, hey, get John Conley and get the other agents back visible in the North End. And it was just crazy to hear it in these tapes, And then you go do it and you solve that problem. So that kind of put Jerry at ease, but they kind of knew something was coming. They were very suspicious. But then again, that was kind of their pastime, right, is being paranoid. So the agents build a solid RICO case. And I mean, it was solid. It was excellent. And they did that over a few months, four months, I believe. I believe the two bugs went into Jerry's office and into Zanino's office, And I think they curtailed those later. They may have taken the Zanino bugs out earlier. But the bugs that the FBI put in 98 Prince Street went from January 81, I believe, to May 81. And that was enough time, more than enough time to solidify a RICO case against all the Angelo's and a host of other mafioso. So they take the bug out in May 81 and seemingly all summer from you know may through september they work on the indictments and building the case and all that so september 1983 makes some arrests and they coordinate it all together they want to take all the Anjulo brothers at once and i think they got lucky because the Anjulos on that evening they had left 98 prince street somewhat early i think and walked down to Francesca's, which was one of their favorite restaurants, where they always had a table available and back, and they had ordered their dinner and all that, and the FBI comes in, and Jerry notices Quinn right away, and they start jarring and all this, and the FBI just slaps the cuffs on them. There was three brothers there, but Jerry comes out with the famous line, don't worry, I'll be back before my pork chops get cold. That wasn't going to be the case, but that's a famous line, and it's a good one. So Jerry at this point is incensed that he's been treated like a common criminal, him and his brothers. He says, all you had to do was mail me an indictment, and I would have been there with lawyers in the morning. But they put him in a holding cell in Boston's District 1, which was downtown, and it was a kind of a haven for prostitutes and all this. And People were giving Jerry the business, saying, "Oh, Godfather," you know, just the typical nonsense. But he was on fire. But he knew they had either a bug or a rat. I think his first inkling was a rat, and it was a big indictment, and it took the whole leadership with them: Zanino, all the brothers, a couple other local mafioso, and it was heavy. It was a heavy Rico case. So before I forget and go any further, I wanted to lay the groundwork here or just maybe alert you to something. During the application for the search warrants for 98 Prince Street, I believe in FBI parlance, it's called a T3 warrant. The FBI shows their corruption and why did they have to do it? So Morris and Conley say they concoct this story that both their agents that they're working, their informants, Whitey Bulger, and stevie flemmie of the winter hill gang went into 98 prince street and they were instrumental in drawing a map of the facility so the agents could get in they really puffed it up and i think they did go there at a certain point but it was brief in the front room only but they really overplayed bulger and flemmies role in this in the t3 so going forward if anybody ever said, or oh, what has Bulger or Flemmy ever done for us, they'll point to that because they know this Angelo case is going to be the biggest thing since sliced bread. And it was. So at this point, this is the convergence of the FBI, who did this premier investigatory work against the Italian mob. John Connolly was already corrupt, but it was at this point. That John Morris began taking money from the Winter Hill gang, and it was just such short money. He sold himself for nothing. I think he started drinking with these guys. They treated him like one of the gang, and he wanted to be, you know? And he took the dough, and that was it for him. It was all downhill from there, and they used him. They spit him out. And one of the workhorses of this investigation was Agent Ed Quinn, and During a subsequent trial for Stevie Flemmie, he had to admit on the stand that he had protected agent John Conley when another mobster came to the FBI looking to provide information about Conley and Bulger's relationship. And this agent Quinn covered up for him and he admitted it on the stand during one of the Stevie Flemmie trials. So man, they're just so tarnished, right? But The RICO case goes pretty well. And one of the real arguments here was, was the jury going to get transcripts of these recordings? Because quite frankly, they were very hard to decipher. These guys were old Italian, right? They spoke very fast, several subjects at once, kind of always in a code, no matter who's in the room. So the FBI did the best they could, and they stitched together some transcripts but the defense the angelo defendants right came up and said you don't know what that says there and there's all question marks all over the transcripts if you don't know what's being said how should the jury know what's being said and once it was decided in the prosecutor's favor that yes they could use transcripts it was basically over for all the Anjulo brothers and man they went down hard And let me tell you what they found when they did the raid, right? They did a raid and they covered all the North End properties pretty quickly. And then they did Jerry's house and all that. But they wanted to get the brothers together. And that was job one. And they did that. But when they went back to 98 Prince Street, let me tell you what they found. They found $327,000 in cash, $300,000 in bonds. And several other banded money. I think they just referred to it as banded money. Man, hundreds of thousands of dollars. Oh, man. So that goes up in smoke. Everybody's arrested. And so this is 1983, guys. And I got to tell you, that was the end of the Boston mob. That's what the Boston FBI did when they were working, like they should be, right? When they're at least kind of working, honestly, right? this is what happens. But also, at this very same time, they're being corrupted by the Winter Hill gang, and that would end up to be the tunes of hundreds of thousands of dollars for John Gonley anyway. Again, during Stevie the Rifleman Fleming's trial, it was said about the FBI corruption in that case, which touched this case, the same FBI agents were involved. The judge said that the following agents, John Conley, Supervisory Agent Morris, Ed Quinn, Mike Buckley, and Nick Turco either broke FBI rules or federal laws during this case. So when I say that, guys, I know that guy, Ed Quinn, seems like a great guy on this. They all have done some good work in this Italian mafia sting, right? But what happens there? I don't know. I guess each agent would have their own story. John Conley was the only one to face any criminal charges. And I think John Morris would have been prosecuted, but he testified against Conley. It's so laughable the FBI. They say, oh, yeah, we're going to go through a reform period after this, and we're going to review confidential informants. And where do they put supervisory agent Morris? Did they fire him for what he did? For the money he took from the mob, the same mob that was pulling women's teeth out, they put him as an instructor at the FBI Academy. That's the big FU to Boston right there. That's the middle finger. So in the Boston media, I can't tell you how big this played. I know it was national media too, but don't forget they released some of those tapes, right? And it was actually hilarious. I've got to find a site that has all the Jerry and Julio tapes because he has some great lines. They got him on one of these tapes saying, I wouldn't be in an honest business for all the money in the effing world. At another point, he just says, talking about the RICO statute, right? He says, we're not interfering on a normal business, a regular law-abiding business with something different. Then Zanino pops in, yeah, we're Shylocks. And then Jewel goes, yeah, we're bookmakers. It's actually so funny. I got to find a site that has all those on them, and I'll put them in the show notes for you. So I guess the end of the Boston mob came with the guilty verdicts in this case. Jerry was convicted in 1986, and I think everybody charged in this case Got guilty, please. Nobody pled out, nobody flipped or anything like that. I don't think they were trying to make guys flip on this. They just wanted these tapes to be played in court. They wanted to take the Boston leadership. They knew if Jerry fell, everybody would fall after him. And that was the case because the Boston Mafia hasn't been a big factor in a very long time. At least what I hear in the newspapers and all that. I'm not involved. The headquarters in Boston is still in the North End, I think, or Revere, and they still report down to Providence. I don't know who's in charge of it now, but it took a big nosedive. That was probably the best work the FBI had done in a generation. But don't forget, also in 86, I think they brought a case against the Mafia Commission in New York, where they also had some tapes. So they had a string of really good hits there, but what people didn't know is how they got there, and it was corrupt. There was a lot of corruption in Boston, and I'm sure it was everywhere else. But let me tell you what happened to all the Angulo brothers. So Jerry, the underboss, he was convicted in 86, and he ended up with about 45 years in total, all Rico racketeering, gambling, the whole nine yards and he went off to the federal pen and he was discharged from a federal prison hospital in 2007 due to some kidney problems and then he later died of kidney failure in 2009 at his seaside mansion in haunt massachusetts jerry was one of a kind no matter what you think of him he was a boston original I got to find a site for you to listen to those tapes. It's really enlightening as to how the mafia operates. So Jerry's brother, Nick Nicolo Angulo, he was also arrested in 83, but Nick never went to trial. He was ill and he died also from a kidney problem in 1987 in St. Elizabeth's Hospital in Boston. Donato Angulo, Danny Angulo Danny was probably one of the more respected brothers on the street. He was your more typical gangster. They were all very short, between like 5'6", 5'7". They were short guys, but Danny was kind of more of the typical mobster rather than Jerry's bluster. He actually did some mafia-type stuff rather than gambling. Danny served 10 years, no, 11 years, so he was released in 1997, and he ended up dying in 2009 in Medford, Massachusetts. Frank Anjulo spent about 14 years, yeah, a solid 14 years for all the Rico stuff. He never married, he had a longtime girlfriend, I guess. And he was released from prison in the year 2000 and died 2015 due to heart failure. I think Mikey Angulo got out first. He did three years in prison. And he ended up dying in 2006. So I think that covers all the brothers. Like I said, guys, the mafia has never been the same. At least in Boston, this was the FBI's home run. They didn't seem very interested in solving the Stuart Gardner museum heist. There may be some reasons for that. They were behind Bulger being able to run for, what, 16 years on the lam when they told him he was going to be indicted. So that's the FBI in Boston. I guess some of those agents did some good work on one case and then kind of gave up on the next one. And it's haunted them ever since, you know. It's weird. You can be one thing one day and something else the other. But they did some good work on this Injulo case, I'll tell you that. The Boston Mafia has never been the same. Again, I feel like I haven't been touting this book enough. It's The Underboss, The Rise and Fall of the Mafia Family by Dick Lear and Gerard O'Neill. They also wrote Black Mass, and you want to read that after The Underboss. So both excellent books, and they're great reporters. I can't recommend that book enough. It's top-notch. It may be one of the best mafia books I've ever read. It's that good, guys. Pick it up. And to be quite honest, guys, I omitted a lot from this. My notes are shredded on the floor here. And I could have went on for three more episodes on the Boston Mafia. And and we'll take some other stuff as we go. There's some more interesting stuff in the Italian Mafia. But I'm going to leave you there with Jerry Angelo. He's quite a character. Absolutely a Boston original. And read that book. It's supremely interesting. And I'm going to try to find some of those tapes that Jerry Angulo gave to the FBI. All right, guys, if you want to get a hold of me, my email is barry at bostonconfidential.net. I enjoyed this little series on the Angulos, as you can tell. If you want to get a hold of me, definitely use that platform, barry at bostonconfidential.net. Otherwise, I'll leave you there. I'll see you on the flip side, and I'll get on to the next one for you.